Welcome to PageCast, a podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Bull Publishers, aimed to give you the story behind the story. By interviewing the authors responsible for some of your most loved books, we explore the thoughts, ideas, emotions, and creative processes that led to the writing of these books. If you're a reader with a zesty interest in people and stories, do stick around and enjoy what PageCast has to offer. A Poor Season for Wales by Michiel Haynes When after 26 years of marriage, Crowley's husband leaves her for a younger man, she has to rethink her priorities and consider her options as a free agent with no appurtenances, how best to turn that freedom into a meaningful future rather than mulling over the past. Opting to leave behind her support system of family and friends, she moves to the seaside town of Hermanus with her dog Benji, intent upon a simple, uncluttered existence. But when the charismatic young Jimmy Prince Lomazibuku enters her life and her home, apparently intent upon establishing himself as a general purpose handyman and cook, she finds herself torn between distrust and attraction. Is he merely the helpful, cheerful young man he seems, or is there a darker purpose to his assistance? Finuala Dowling, poet and academic at the University of Cape Town, will be in conversation with author Michiel Haynes. Haynes is an award-winning literary translator and author of eight novels and is also a former academic. His latest book, A Poor Season for Wales, will be at the centre of this conversation. Thanks. Um, I want to begin, uh, Michiel, with the compliments of the season, compliments of the season of, of Wales. I mean, it's, it's a marvellous book. It's it's uh, funny. It's so tightly plotted. It's thought-provoking. Um, it's it's a page-turner in the sense we get quite involved with Margaret and, and quite worried about what she's getting herself into. But it's also a page-lingerer in, in the sense that, that there are these wonderful quotable quotes and, and lovely uh, satirical conversations. Um, and uh, at the same time, I'm sure that you are already working on another novel. And what interests me, and my first question is, how does a writer like, especially one like you who has so many books behind them, how do you cross the bridge to the next uh, novel? Um, I mean, I remember the two of us sitting, was it two years ago, in a real bookshop discussing I am Pandarus, um, you know, those lovely times. People, real people used to come up afterwards and have their books signed. Um, and I'm thinking it's such a different book from I Am Pandarus, and uh, I wondered what attracted you to this new material. Was it was it the enclave of Hermanus? Was it Margaret's character? Um, was it the, the modernness of your, your characters who can self-identify as whatever they like? Or, or was it indeed the the classic Jane Austen opening that you borrowed? So, so what led you across the bridge? I wasn't led as much as pushed um, by my publisher because when I gave him this my last novel, The Ampanderous, which was set in um, ancient Troy, he said, fine, we'll publish this, but the next one has to be contemporary and it has to be local. So that is, so I said, how, how local can I get? And I didn't want to write about Somerset West, which is where I live. And I thought, we'll write about what you know. I happen to know Hermanus. 
So um, Hermana sort of suggested itself. But then again, I've told the story a number of times. I had people visiting me and they went off to Hermanus for the day and they came back and they had been wanting to see whales. They didn't see any, but they said that they met this old gentleman on the cliff path. He said, whoa, it's a poor season for whales. <laughs> and we, we thought it was funny and also thought it would be a good title for a novel. So I started literally with a title. I mean, I, this is the first time I've ever started to build a novel around a title. Uh, and that is where it started. I don't, I'm not quite sure where Margaret came from. I said, well, okay, uh, Hermanus, people retire to Hermanus. And somehow Margaret suggested herself. I, I couldn't tell you why. Perhaps is it the first I've had, certainly had women at the center of my novels before, but this is the first time I perhaps ever so a 55 year old woman at the center of my novel. I, I don't know. So well, I, want to, uh, hmm? I want to ask you more about Margaret or ask you to tell us more about Margaret. And um, she is, um, I would, I mean, you, you, you begin, you've got a, an epigraph that comes from Jane Austen and, and you begin with your preamble is, is, a, is a take on the opening of Emma, the novel Emma. And, um, so I, I think Margaret is like a Jane Austen heroine or like a, any good heroine. She is interesting, but flawed, a bit flawed in, um, yeah, she, what does, what does uh, Jimmy say about her? She's, she's not a great sharer. And I, I think that's true in, in lots of ways. And she's, she's trying to be solitary. I mean, I really identified with, with Margaret's, um, absolutely abortive attempts to live a completely solitary life. You know, just, yeah. and that also speaks to another one of your epigraphs from, from Henry James. But tell us about, uh, Margaret. Uh, tell us about her kitchen. Where does the, I had to ask my sister how you pronounce this kind of kitchen, the Mila kitchen, um, and uh, and her relationship. I think to, I mean, she reads Jane Austen herself. Her relationship to those lovely Jane Austen heroine sisters, not not just Emma, but also to to Eleanor and Marianne in Sense and Sensibility. Yes, yes, yes. Evans, I don't know. You must know yourself. You're a novelist. Um, where do your characters come from? You base them partly on people you know. In this instance, not very much. Um, I think my friends will be relieved to hear that I didn't paint portraits uh, of them and that such uh, flaws as Margaret does have are not derived from those of my friends. I don't know. I I really started... Remember, well, since we're talking about Henry James, he says about the portrait of a lady, I started with the idea of a single young woman affronting her destiny. Well, perhaps I started with the idea of a middle-aged woman affronting her destiny and, and built it around that. He says he then had only this central idea of a woman, and then he had to create a, well, a life for her. Yeah. And I think that's what I did with Margaret. I had, Mar I had Hermanus. She had to have a dog. Uh, you know, uh, because my characters always have dogs. And the dog, uh, without, uh, this is not much of a spoiler, but he turns into a, a major character in the novel, as my dogs tend to do. So having a woman and a dog, and she's living on the cliff path, I literally, my first scene, she's walking uh, in the, on the cliff path, and her dog, Benji, jumps off a, a rock, um, 
chasing a dossie, and there he's stuck. I mean, I, I literally said to myself, well, Margaret is taking a walk. Who is she going to meet on this walk? And, um, you know, I don't want to say the muse breathed into my ear or anything like that, <laughs> but Jimmy, Jimmy turned up. There he was standing next to her, and then, of course, he becomes the secondary character. I think I often work like that. I remember the one uh, set in Italy. Um, I started, yes, he's on Stansted Airport. Who does he see? And I described two people he sees, a man called Cedric and an older man. I didn't know who on earth they were. I had to create lives for them. And then they became the secondary characters in the novel. I think that's probably how I go about it, is, is sort of sit things in motion, create a character. And I mean, it sounds corny when I say, you see what the character does. Obviously, the character does what you tell him or her to do, except it's not quite as simple as that either. I mean, you must also know that once, you don't want to say they have a will of their own, but they certainly okay. seem to, yeah, they, 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 they have a sort of, they do things and, and they say things and that leads you on to the next. So this novel, probably more so than any other, because as I said, I started with a blank canvas. I started with a title. Uh, with uh, many of the other novels, obviously the one on Henry James, I started with a whole backstory with a lot of research. And um, I wrote one about uh, Body's Politic, the Pankhurst. I did a lot of research. So there things were uh, set out for me to a large extent. And in a way that is more difficult because you now have to conform to a, a preset uh, matrix. Whereas here, I mean, this was actually great fun writing this novel because I could invent anything. I mean, within reason, I mean, that uh, who's going to come along next? And um, in fact, the Jane Austen also was not planned. I mean, the epigraph from Emma, I wrote after I finished the novel. Um, I just thought that uh, it seemed appropriate. And I suppose Jane Austen is in my DNA, whenever, as is Henry James, and they just, you know, crop up without my actually intending them to. So that's really how Jane Austen came into the novel. I didn't start with her at all. I wouldn't even say I envisaged Margaret as a Jane austen character. I mean, Jane Austen wouldn't have written about a 55-year-old woman, you know. She'd have written about a marriageable woman and about the love affair that leads to marriage. This is a woman who is divorced. Hmm? What? I, I do think it's... Uh, I think you've managed to write a Jane Austen novel with sex in it, and, and I, I commend you for it. Um, there, in many ways, your style is so Jane Austen-esque, um, and yet Margaret is confronting very, uh, very modern desires and things that are expressed in modern novels. Um, and it was such a success. But the, the, I'm just going to slightly, I mean, Jane Austen is the patron saint of our kind of satire. And um, mm -hmm. I, um, I, I, earlier today, I sent you um, a passage I wanted you to, to read for us this evening. And um, just to say that, I think um, it's that it's a dinner party scene, which is always a classic 
satirical material, isn't it? I mean, what other reason would we writers go out for other than to take notes at conversations? <laughs> Well, um, James based all his novels on stories he'd heard, not all his novels, but many of his novels on stories he'd heard at dinner parties. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah and um, I I just, what I want to say about the scene, I, maybe you'll think, why did I choose such a light scene? But it, I chose it because I was at dinner the other evening, but with my South African sisters here, and, um, and I found myself telling them your scene. I found them myself enjoying telling them uh, about it and both of them just said oh that's marvelous oh that's so funny what a what a funny idea so I, I wanted you to read it and just maybe tell our audience a little bit about the context the we you're going to read the part where they the dinner party guests disagree about something but they've actually agreed about something before that um Yes, they yeah. talked about all the usual things, Jacob Zuma, Brexit, all these things, and of course they all agree, you know, they are middle class South Africans, you know, middle class white South Africans. Yeah. Uh, so should I carry on from there, will you? Yeah. So, so there is this dinner party, no one knows, they, they're all strange, they've been uh, to each other, the hostess has just assembled a group of people who happened to be in Hermanus at the time. So um, so they haven't met each other before and they sort of feeling their way as uh, one does. They, um, I should just also explain that there are um, two men, Keith and Krista, and Margaret doesn't know who is who. I mean, so that explains why, why there are sort of double references to Keith and Krista. Um, so we start with Marge. Marge is the hostess. Um, but Marge, ever the attentive hostess, chipped in with... Philip has a really lovely beach cottage on Grotto, but during the week he lawyers in Swellendam. Philip nodded gravely, as if reluctantly admitting to a minor misdemeanor. And Christo, or Keith, started reminiscing about a wonderful weekend they'd spent in Swellendam, except it turned out, with polite prompting from Keith or Christo, to have been Montague, which Chris and Cindy pronounced to be equally delightful. Philip crushed the meringue of his pavlova with emphatic gravitas and said, actually, I think Montague is a dump. This was so unexpected that Margaret uttered a help of laughter before she could stop herself. Chris said, clearly offended, well, we loved it, didn't we, darling? And Cindy said, Oh, yes, isn't that where we had those divine chicken pies? No, I think that was Barrydale, darling, said Chris. In Montague, we had lamb curry. No, that was Barrydale, lovey, said Cindy. I remember because it said a Barrydale speciality on the menu. Oh, yes, said Christa, or perhaps Keith. We've had the lamb curry in Barrydale, haven't we, Keith? Aha, uh -huh, Keith. Um, was that Barrydale, asked Keith, as Margaret now knew. I thought it was Lady Smith. No, Keith, said Christo with a light laugh over a simmering irritation. It was definitely Barrydale. Well, since you're so definite, I suppose it was Barrydale. Except, he added in a stage whisper to the company at large, a hand theatrically covering his mouth. I still think it was Lady Smith. Margaret found it odd that a group of people could, without much fuss, reach unanimity on matters of national and international importance, and then disagree passionately about chicken pies and lamb curry. In any case, she said to Philip, I think we've established that you live in Swellendam. 
Um, I, I'm not sure how you'll feel about this question, but it's, it's something that troubles me with satire, that a scene like that is a scene we can write and it will be acceptable to the world. But do you feel now as a satirical writer, as a writer in not just in South Africa, but in, in the world itself, the way it's moving towards a kind of mandatory humorlessness where so much new censorship is entering, do you do you question yourself as you're writing um, about how will this be interpreted by the thought police? Um, I, I would say generally no. I mean, I've, I think my answer comes in two parts. Firstly, it's interesting that the crises we have at the moment, especially the pandemic, has produced so much humor. I mean, that's uh, really there's so many jokes. And of course, another great source of humor is Donald Trump. You know, I mean, these absolute disasters. And I suppose that is a natural human instinct is to, we, we defend ourselves against this awful reality by making jokes about it. I mean, and in, in plagues, people make jokes about death. You know, people are making jokes about death. So that's part one of the answer. I think that if you talk of the thought police in South Africa, one has, of course, to be very careful. I mean, that there are, there are certain areas where humor is not allowed to go. Um, I think people are pushing the borders, boundaries even there, but, uh, you know, it's, for heaven's sake, don't, you know, don't tweet <laughs> because, you know, you can un un unleash a, an absolute uh, barrage of um, criticism. So, yeah, you do watch that, that you don't say anything terribly insensitive, um, and I think that's probably a good thing. Um, there have been eras of history, I think, where people have relished, you know, being offensive. But I, I think people have become very touchy, um, perhaps especially in America, you know, that, you know, you, you just make a slightly off joke and boy, you know, there it goes. On the other hand, you know, late night TV, they don't care what they say. Although I suspect even there, there are certain no-go areas, you know. Okay, Donald Trump is fair game, but, you know, um, you know, you can't make jokes about Black Lives Matter, for instance. You know, who would want to? But, you know, I'm just saying that there are certain areas that you, that you steer clear of. So, but I think that... Mm -hmm. No, I mean, carry on. Sorry, finish what you were saying. I think my satire remains fairly safe. I mean, I, I'm not really tempted to be outrageous, you know, so... You know, so you have a dinner party, you make fun of people at a dinner party. That's not really terribly brave or, or anything. Um, no, I, but I, I think this brings me to, to Jimmy and and the miracle of Jimmy coming into your into your narrative. You say you were you have Margaret walking along the cliff path, and who is she going to encounter? And it happens to be Jimmy Prince Lou Mazubuko, who is the product of um, an ANC politician and um, an, an Afrikaans woman who's seen a light or <laughs> seen her well, own light. Yeah. Yes. And, um, and he's a fascinating character. And I, he, there's almost like a dance between the two of them. And there's Margaret really wanting to live this life of solitude. Um, and and there's Jimmy refusing, but also Margaret being very reticent, very white South African liberal in her uh, concerns. And Jimmy challenges her. I mean, Jimmy, Jimmy does say things that are quite audacious. 
Well, and he can you... because he has an ANC father and an Afrikaans mother, so he can say almost anything. Yeah, so. yeah he's got license. And, he's got and license. I'm, and I'm interested in my own reactions reading his character when um, Jimmy, who is this uh, racial mixed character, uh, you know, and he sort of inveigles his way into her house and uses her shower before they really have any kind of relationship. And he, he seems to be taking over her space. And then he starts staring at her alarm system. And I think, Margaret, Margaret, watch out. I mean, this man. <laughs> and so you, you the, the reader, you get caught out with your um, prejudices. Um, so I just wanted you to talk a bit more about Jimmy. Was he a miracle? Did you? How did you deal with a character who did things that are quite offensive and yet at the same time you keep the reader not not against him he you string it out wonderfully i mean as as the blurb says it's a psychological drama this this give and take of jimmy's personality is it because he's young that uh, he gets away with things um does he get away with things? I know some people have said they just find him irritating because I, 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 I did write him as rather irritating. He deliberately needles Margaret. So, so I wanted a challenging character, and he, and because of his background, he can be challenging on all fronts. He can confront yeah. her with the fact you are a white middle-aged woman, middle-class middle-aged woman with your kitchen and your dog. Um, so he, he can confront her like that. So he's. Um, I suppose, I mean, one could say he's a useful character in that he doesn't have to have those boundaries. He can um, be, well, he's a shapeshifter, isn't he? So he is, you know, he adjusts himself to whatever audience he has. And I think that is, was to me the interest in his relationship with Margaret is how he challenges her. Um, yeah. He, uh, and she, is offended she's irritated i had to scrap any number of occurrences of the word irritated i discovered how often i'd use it because she's irritated with him all the time but irritation is a form of stimulation i suppose and um, so yes uh, he could also he could make comments about the racial situation which a, a white ca character would probably be more careful about making so he was useful from that point of view mm. um, he, uh, yes, I could use him in lots of different ways. And to be honest, when he appeared, I didn't know what on earth he was all about. I just, I don't know why I decided he had to be of, of mixed race, perhaps because it gave me more options. And then I thought, let's see. I mean, when he look, when he looks at the burglar alarm, I didn't know, you know, what whether he was interested for the reasons that we think or why, you know, then. It was another fun aspect of this novel is that I didn't really know how it was going to turn out. Um, I mean, until very late in the novel. And that's why I put in, well, this is not a spoiler because it's in the preamble where I have the sites that the line about it was not to be foreseen that in her 56th year she would kill a man with a kitchen knife. I mean, that is really just to set the reader up. But I mean, I didn't know that when uh, when I started writing the novel that she was going to kill a man with a kitchen knife. That that happened. Um, and so, 
Well, I love your knives. I love, I mean, your writing is so economical. I mean, if there's a knife or a painting or a bowl of ice cream in Michiel's book, then that knife, bowl of ice cream, painting is going to be germane. And it has <laughs> a double twist at the end I loved. Um, but just to say a bit with Jimmy and Margaret, um, for you was the kind of, when you look at it afterwards or while you were working on it, was your sense of the theme of the novel an exploration of solitude versus society, or was it about truth? Um, because the two of them seem to have very different views of truth. And I don't take it entirely amiss, Michiel, that you seem to align poets with a lack of truth in your in your novel. Because Jimmy- Do I, do I, I wonder. Because yeah. that's interesting. In the novel I'm writing at the moment, someone says to my main character, what do you believe in? And he says, I believe in poetry. Um, so, you know, I'm making a towards poets. Um, yes, um, you've put your finger on two main themes that emerged. One is, well, as the Henry James quote says, is can one ever be a, just a pure character without any appurtenances, as James puts it? Uh, he said, well, his character um, says everybody is some of everything surrounding him or her. So that was one theme that I started with, say, a kind of laboratory uh, experiment. Take a woman who decides she wants to cut ties with her old life. Place her there in this laboratory and see what happens to her. So that was one of the drivers of the novel. Truth emerged as, as a theme, just because Jimmy is so mysterious and you never know whether he's telling the truth. So that became a major uh, aspect. And Jimmy, of course, has very original views on truth. I mean, that uh, to him, you know, perhaps it's the alternative truth that uh, Donald Trump has made famous. But um, so those two themes sort of, played off against each other in, in the novel. Yeah. And, and uh, just one last question before we go to what our audience's questions might be. Um, the, the title of uh, the novel, um, obviously, you said it came to you, it was given unto you by, um, <laughs> by an a, angel. <laughs> a Hermanus resident. Um, but then I was thinking about how it really works for you in the sense of, the title being like a hint to the reader, don't don't come to Hermanus and expect to see whales, I'm gonna give you something else perhaps, but also a season, that, that this is a very um, tightly compressed novel in terms of time. And um, I wondered if that was part of your pleasure. I mean, you've spoken about the pleasure of writing this book, the, the, the discovery, the joy, and, um, whether giving yourself that tight time frame from I think it's the 10th of November till the 7th of January the next year. Yes. I wondered whether perhaps you had written the novel in a similar time frame, which would be very athletic of you, but um, whether that was a helpful and satisfying way of proceeding, knowing that each chapter was a day. Yes, I sort of drifted into it. I did. Uh, I don't want to say I wrote it in real time. I certainly didn't write this novel in, in 10 days or two months or whatever. But I did keep track of, you know, what was likely to happen on such and such a day. 
So I did. I did keep the. Well, Jane Austen apparently also wrote her novels with her. Uh, you know. Uh, a calendar next to her. So I, uh, that's not why I did it. But I thought, yes, I mean, I I suppose it's, I'm really just thinking, you know, off the top of my head now. But I suppose also because I didn't really have a predetermined scheme that I thought, let's take this novel one day by at a time and, and see what happens. I can't now predict what's going to happen in six months time. I think you need to have a different kind of imagination. If you're going to uh, make a novel span five years, you have to plan in terms of, so. yeah, I suppose, come to think of it, it's probably quite lazy. You say, okay, I'll just take it one day at a time and um, and see what happens. And that is what happens. So. Well, it's wonderful. It's, I mean, it's very like a, a stage drama. And I really was gripped, you know, um, there's some books you have to read because they're like a chore or something because everyone tells you you must read this. But the, your book was just such a pleasure to, to read and then to read again in preparation for this interview. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of PageCast. We have an incredible lineup of author interviews. So head over to our Facebook and Instagram and follow Jonathan Ball Publishers to stay updated and in the know regarding future episodes. Thanks for your interest in the story behind the story. Happy reading from everyone at PageCast. <laughs>